Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 10, verses 1 through 16. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and to send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. I got you. Yeah, I got you. You're good. All right. Well, you know, one time I heard somebody say that the reason that the preachers who preach through books of the Bible do it is because uh, they're lazy and not creative. But I tell you, this is hard. <laughs> is it not? I mean, like, sometimes I'll get to the next verse and I'm like, okay, all right, let's get it. All right, so before we get into the, the nitty gritty of this text, a couple things. One, um, I just want to express uh, how much I care about y'all. Um, I, I, I love y'all, for real. I see God's grace at work in your life. I see how y'all care for one another. Um, I, I said that one time and, and somebody came up to me and they said, I've never heard a pastor say that to their congregation. And I thought, well, that's not like Apostle Paul. He would say stuff to his congregation or his, his people like, you are my joy. You're my, my crown of joy before the Lord at his coming. And so I just want to tell y'all, I just really appreciate y'all. And I love what, what, what God has been doing. And I'm excited to see what he continues to do. All right, that's the end of that. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, in Christianity, no, no aspect of life is, is mundane or left untouched by Christ. Everything, everything that we do is infused with divine importance. And we see Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, the author of life, addressing these issues such as marriage and children. And what we learn from this text and from the whole biblical narrative is this, is that marriage... And children are for our good and point to Christ in the church. So let's, let's ask for his help. Lord, we, we ask you that you would help us to understand your word. Lord, I am not ignorant that, that, uh, that these topics can, can um, bring out points of pain in folks. So Lord, I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would just give us extra grace this morning. Help us to understand your word, to 
to receive your care and to honor your truth. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so first off, our view of marriage and family should be shaped by God and his word. In other words, we need to look at the larger context. Y'all know I say a lot, context is king. Context is king. So when you're looking at a particular Bible verse, you're looking at what's before and after, you're looking at that chapter, you're looking at that book. Ultimately, you're looking at the whole of Scripture to understand what is the the larger context of this, because if I take something out of this context, I'm in danger of misunderstanding. And so before we even get to the text itself, we have to ask ourselves the question, when we look at Scripture, when we look at what Jesus taught, what does he teach about marriage and and the family, and what we see is that marriage and the family is God's first institution. Before there's a government, before there's a school, before there's any other grouping of humanity, there's a marriage. And, and, and one doctrinal statement says that the purpose of marriage is that it was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. All right, so you help each other, right? It was for the increase of mankind. That's a fancy way of saying to have kids. And it's for the preventing of uncleanness, meaning that there is, is meant to be a place where there is there's sexual purity and there's joy there. And so we see that God has created marriage for this mutual help of husband and wife. It's, it's, for, the, the, it's for children. It's for preventing immorality. And then we see children, they were the means of filling the earth with more people to enjoy God's creation and spread his honor. That's what, what he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This is to, to subdue creation, to fill it with God's glory. But here's the deal. Yet as the Bible unfolds, we see that both marriage and children point to something even greater, that they both point to our relationship with God. They point to Christ and his church or to the father and his children. And I don't have to, 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 to argue this point. I can just read to you what it says in Ephesians 5. It says, it says in Ephesians 5, 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Get this, this is verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Translation is this. Marriage exists to signify and point to the relationship that Christ has with his church. Or we can look at the parent-child relationship, that that actually points to our relationship as, uh, with God as our father. In 2 Corinthians 6, 18, it says, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We see a relationship of nurture, provision, 
and, and training. What's interesting is, is the Bible says that all things were created by Christ and they were created for him. Meaning this, that nothing exists as, as, as something for its own right. It exists as an indicator and a pointer to something or someone greater. So the fact that we even have a thing called marriage or a thing called parents and children, the fact that that is a thing in our world, it is because it exists to tell us something that is fundamentally true about Christ and his love for us, about the Father and his care for us. And Christians, that's why it matters that we model both of these well, because it points to something larger than ourselves. It points to something larger than our family or larger than our children. It points to to the gospel, to, to grace itself. And we have the opportunity to point to Christ and our salvation and our faithfulness in this area. All right, larger context. Got it? Now let's dig in. Let's dig in. When we look at the first part, we we understand this truth, that we must make our decisions, our moral decisions, based on the scriptures and their correct interpretation. In verse 1, Jesus set out from there, went out to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as his, was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came to test him. Catch that. They, didn't really, they, were, they weren't trying to get a correct answer. They were, never mind. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, why did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write, our, write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. One of the things that's so interesting is, is Jesus is someone who can speak authoritatively about any subject. And they ask him a question, and what did he refer to? The scriptures. He referred, so like, if anybody can just go off the cuff and just make wise judgments, is it not Jesus? But he actually teaches, if you are going to make complex decisions about hard moral issues, it's not just, well, what I feel like today is, it's, I actually have to go back to this text of scriptures. Jesus Christ himself submitted to the scriptures. If Christ looks to the scriptures for answers to moral questions, then I think we better. Because we're not wiser than him, are we? We learned that we need to be careful not to take the scriptures out of context. See, the Pharisees, they took uh, some scripture in Deuteronomy 24 and, and they manipulated them for their own good. In other words, some, some scholars of the day was like, Hey, if you, if you just, you know, your wife doesn't cook good meal for you today, bye. I'm not joking. That's for real. So, so he just, he's ta- they're taking scripture and they're manipulating it in such a way for their selfish pleasure. Listen, when the interpretation of a scripture serves selfish purposes, you need to beware. Because the scriptures don't exist to tell you what you already want to do. The scriptures exist to confront you with the truth of God's word. We learn this, that God creates some rules as a response to our sinfulness and to protect his people. So the verse they're referring to is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And I don't have time to dig all the way into that text, but here's what the NIV Study Bible says about it. It says, this law is intended to restrict a practice that could lead to treating women as a commodity. Cavalier divorce would rob the wife not only of her dignity, but also her wealth. 
So here's what you need to know. That law that they're referring to in the, in the law of Moses, this is not a law that reflected God's love of divorce. It reflected his protection of others from sin. Church, church discipline is, is similar in that case. It's, it's the process of correcting sin in the life of the congregation and its members. And it's not, a, it's not like God just likes, loves church discipline. It's not like, yeah, let's go do that to everybody. That's not the point. It's a rule that doesn't reflect God's original intent, but it's a response to our sinfulness and the protection of his people. It's not a joyous act, but rather an act to protect God's people. We need to look at the whole of scriptures to understand something. And if God makes a law in response to our sin- sinfulness— that doesn't necessarily indicate that that is his best. See, see God created marriage to last, as a, uh, uh, to last as a reflection of the union of Christ and the church. Look at Jesus in verse 6, and he's referring again to the scriptures. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Look how Jesus, again, uses the whole of Scripture to answer their question, not just an isolated verse. Well, people were taking some stuff in Deuteronomy 24 and were just like, well, let's just go with that. And Jesus is like, back up now. Don't be just taking verses out of context like that. Look at the whole of Scripture for you to make your decisions. Jesus uses this verse in Genesis as the basis, really, for all of his teachings regarding sex and relationships. Every time he's asked about divorce or sex or adultery, he always goes back to this verse, this creational foundation. And we have to look to this foundational verse when considering questions of sexual morality. we got a lot of questions in our culture. And the question, look, you can ask a question like, well, I think this. Well, if Jesus didn't just do that, and he submitted to the text, then all the complex questions regarding sexuality, we should probably do what he did and go back to the text. We see in this text is that, that, that a man leaves his place of comfort, he leaves his house, and he pursues his wife. In other words, Christian men ought to pursue a woman to marry. If you are a young man and you ain't crazy, you got your junk together, right? Let's just keep it real. And you like, you tell me, I like said girl. I'm like, you need to go talk to her. <laughs> it ain't gonna happen by osmosis, friend. <laughs> you ain't gonna accidentally get married. You know what I'm saying? Like, you better figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like God created this, this intent that, that, that godly men would pursue women in, in a godly and, 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 and helpful way. Like, this is not something that is osmosis. And I, sometimes I fear, let, let me just, let me just, this is me being a pastor for a second. I'm gonna put my pastor at. Sometimes in our fight to be content in singleness, we swing the pendulum the whole other way and get complacent. And like, if it happens, it happens. That's not usually how things happen. If this is a creational good, and if you kind of want it, you should pursue it. This pursuit, this pursuit where a man pursues his wife, it, it continues in marriage. And there's this initiative of caring and love. And then it says that God unites them together and makes them one. Yeah, I know I had a church, quote a church father, right? Tertullian, African guy, 100s. He says, it says that though the, the, the husband and the wife, the Christian husband and wife, that they enjoy kinship in spirit and flesh. They are mutual servants with no discrepancy of interest. They stand equally before God, equally in crisis, 
equally facing persecutions, equally in refreshments. In other words, the ups and downs of life, they share that thing. And remember, this all points to Christ. He is the one who left the comforts of heaven to pursue his bride, did he not? He put some initiative, right, and, and, and made himself vulnerable. He himself, he, he makes himself one with the church and takes responsibility for her well-being. And beloved, he will never forsake his bride, the church. That, that's, that's why we can rest in him. That, 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 that the church's husband, Jesus, takes responsibility, pursues, and he will never leave or forsake her? That can mean we can rest a little bit, y'all. And then we get down to verses 10, 11, 12, which poses the question, what do we do about the sin or the shortcomings that can cause divorce? Look at verse 10. It says, when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Here's what I want you to understand. The fact that Jesus taught this and they got in the house and he had to teach it again means that this is a hard teaching. Right? The disciples like, what did you say? <laughs> Tell me like I'm five. You know, like, like, I heard what you said, but did you say? In other words, other words, this idea of marriage being a lifelong covenant... That's a hard teaching. It didn't just get hard in 2023. It was hard back then. And the disciples were like, is that serious? Are you sure? Are you sure, Jesus? And Jesus is like, yes, absolutely, 100% sure. And, and remember, remember, Jesus is addressing this, this serial monogamy that was happening uh, because of Deuteronomy 24. Basically, he's like, y'all can't just go wife swapping. Not, this is not a TV show. Like, <laughs> this is not what we're about to do today. But in his answer, he opens up the door for reasons that would justify divorce. What if you're the one who's abandoned? What, what if you're the one? And, and, and the other scriptures answer this, that, that ultimately the Bible gives causes or reasons or allowances for divorce through abdications or abuses. So let me, let me slow down and explain what I'm talking about. We've talked about in other sermons that, that each and every one of us has a vocation, a role, and a responsibility before God. And, and if we fulfill that role or responsibility, we are actually doing justice. If we abdicate or abuse that role, we are committing injustice. All right, so the easiest one to, 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 to explain is, is the role of a parent. Like, I, I have an authority over my child. I could, I could abdicate that, be physically, uh, emotionally, just unaware. Just, I don't know what's going on. And I could ab abdicate that role, and that would be an injustice. Or I could be abused that by being harsh and mean. The same is true within the marriage relationship, that there can be abdications, that there's some form of abandonment. There's some, some form of, that he just, they're gone. But on the flip side, there is abuse. There's abuse through unfaithfulness. There's abuse through, through, through literal abuse. Here's the deal. I can't answer every single question of every single case study, but here's the deal. These things need to be walked out in the context of community. Marriages need the church community. 
Sometimes I fear that, that we, we live our married life in this bubble, and, and we don't want to let other people speak into that. But that's not true of our personal spiritual life. Why would it be true of our marriages if we we're in Christ? If we are having issues, if we are having struggles, that's when you need to approach an older brother, an older sister in the Lord and say, help me. Help, help me understand what's going on. Help me to wrestle through these things. I, I remember uh, in um, student ministry last Wednesday, we were, we were going through the Summer on the Mount, and we we're talking about when Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery, which opened up a whole can of worms about, you know, all that stuff. And, <laughs> and so we, I was with the, the, the middle school boys, and it was me and John and Damon. And we started talking about marriage, and I was like, I've been married for 11 years. And the mom was like, I've been married for 19 years. And John goes, I've been married for 40 years. They're like, <laughs> that's four decades. I'm like, that's true. <laughs> like, me, but the point is this. We should look to folks who have been faithful for advice. Yeah. You're not meant to struggle as an individual alone. You're not meant to struggle in marriage alone. The church is here to support you. There's a couple of things I also need to say, too. Whenever there are abdications and abuses, these things ought to be dealt with in the correct sphere of authority. Let me be clear. If a spouse is unrepentantly sinning, but not breaking the law, you tell the church. If a spouse is sinning against you or your children by breaking the law, you tell the police and the church. I can't put no restraining orders on nobody, okay? You feel me? I just need to be real. Because so, so, sometimes what happens is churches step out of their sphere of authority. Listen, if, if the person gets arrested, I'll still tell them about Jesus, but I can't, I, that's, not, that's not on me. And, and we as church leaders, we as a church need to understand that there are spheres of authority, and we need to respect that. The church's sphere of authority is a spiritual one. But if there is, if there is illegal activity, if there is real harm being done, then the, the proper sphere of authority has to be contacted. I know we get into the nitty-gritty, but it's, we just might as well go there, right? It is what it is. All right, so we see that, that marriage is, 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 is set by God. It's supposed to reflect Christ in the church. It's not something that you just get out willy-nilly. However, there are uh, times of abdications or abuse in which it is allowable. That's the complex teaching of Christ. And all of that, y'all, has to be walked out in community. If you're looking for marriage counseling, this sermon is not it. <laughs> okay? Now let's move on. So he talks about marriage, and then he starts talking about children. In verse 13, 14, we're reminded that Jesus cares for children. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, he might bless them. This is such a, and I don't know exactly the chronology, but I tell you what, isn't that a weird time to bring children into the conversation? <laughs> they, they up and talk about divorce and remarriage and all this kind of, hey, him and my child, you're like, bro, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> this is kind of a serious conversation, you know what I'm saying? And so, so, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's interesting that this comes in the text right after the discussion of marriage and divorce. And this isn't even a, a Christian thing. Social sciences, they actually teach us that divorce generally has a negative impact on children. That's not, that's, that's, that's just science. That's social science. It points to the goodness of God's design. And the fact that we need to make our decisions not based on just personal preferences, but, but is this good for all the people involved? 
Jesus wants children to come to him. We see that. And, and listen, they primarily come to him through the faithfulness and instruction of godly parents. Now, that's not the only way, but that is the primary way. That is the primary way. And we ought to, to take responsibility that we are teaching our children the, the, the word of God, that we are praying with them, that we are having them in church community, that we are setting a godly example. That is the primary means through which God saves. So, so, so let, let's, let's take that responsibility. Listen, if, if Jesus was like sitting right there and you had your kid, you would probably take him to see Jesus, right? Like if Santa Claus or something, sitting on his lap or whatever. But here's the deal. He's not here, but he's in his word. So you can still take them to see Jesus. Yeah? He's not physically here, but he with his church. You can take them to see Jesus. If you want your kids to get blessed by Jesus, make sure that you are present in the means of grace. Now, now, our church should be a place in which children and those who are young in the faith can come and be blessed. The reason the disciples did not want children around is because they thought that they were getting away. Come on, kid, we're talking about the complexities of divorce over here. Shh. You know, like it, it gets, let's just keep it real, right? If you got little kids, you know you're trying to have a conversation. That conversation not happening like you thought it was. You like we we try to have like a ten minute conversation take like two hours because mama daddy you know like like it's messy it's messy. The disciples didn't want them to get in, get in the way of the teaching like we gotta have this decorum but Jesus said no those people I want them with me. And whether it's children are those who will quote-unquote get in the way because they're young in the faith. Those are the people that, that are exactly the people that we would want to be here. Listen, if your church isn't a little messy, if there ain't some interruptions, if there ain't sometimes if you're a leader where you're going, what? You don't got the church that Jesus wants. I want, he said, I want the disruptive, the messy, I want all of them with me. And I know it might mess up the service, and you, it might mess it up and look a little wonky, and, and you'll say something, and you'll have to say it again. That's fine. Those are the people. Beloved, our church should be a, a place where children and, and those who are young in faith, where they can be, I can be here, and they are not considered in the way. They are not considered an obstacle to the real work, but they are the real work. A church should be messy. Because we're inviting messy people to the Lord Jesus. We get to verse 15 and we learn that those which out like faith enter the kingdom. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid hands on them and blessed them. So we see that, that, that Jesus cares about marriage. He cares about family. He cares about children, but I'm not ignorant. I know that a message about family, about marriage, about divorce, it can bring up some painful memories. Yeah? So, so how do we receive healing and or forgiveness when these painful memories are brought up? And I love that Jesus points to children. When he says, he says that those are, that's where the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of God is a place where you get healing and forgiveness, and God's grace, and his love. How do I get in that realm? Listen, when children do, what children do when they have been wounded, are sinned against, is what they run to who? 
They run to mom or dad. They don't sit there debating about if they should go. They're not, they're not having a, like, a, like a, maybe they can help me. Like, they just have this assumption. My parents are going to help me. I, I, I've, been, I've been hurt. I have been wounded. I can run to mom or dad. Listen, how do we receive the healing that we need? We have to run to someone who can be trusted that we would seek help and comfort. And who better to run to than Jesus? If you have been wounded, if you have been hurt, you can run to Jesus and he will console you. That's the kind of God that he is. That if this message brought points of pain and hurt, just like a child would run to their mom or dad and believe that they would receive healing and comfort, you can run to Christ. But not only that, what about if you're the one who made the mistake? What about if you're the one who sinned? What do children do when their sin gets highlighted? Now, the first thing they do is deny it, okay? Let's just keep it real. But when they know the jig is up, right? <laughs> when they know all oh, he, daddy know. They are so quick to ask for mercy. Quick. Please, I, please, forgive me. My bad. It was an accident. You know, like, brrr, you know, all this. They, they have no issues whatsoever asking for mercy. And they're asking, fully expecting that you will show it. And Jesus says, listen, if you're the one that's been caught, if you're the one who has sinned, just like the child runs to his parents and begs for mercy and expects to be forgiven. Beloved, you run to Christ. He will forgive you and he will receive you. Listen, all of this, all of this actually points to the cross of Christ. How, how do we know that Jesus can console us? How do we know that he sympathizes when we have been sinned against? Listen, on the cross, we see that Jesus fully identified with sinners. Excuse me, those who have been sinned against. He was the one who was betrayed. He was the one where his friends ratted him out. His friends abandoned him. He was on the cross by himself. He understands what it means to be sinned against. He understands what it means to be let down. He understands that. So he is the perfect person that when you are feeling the weight of that which has been done against you, he is the one who goes, I know what that's like. And not only does he know what it's like, Beloved, he has healing power in his hands. He is the one who can bring comfort. What about those who, who were the sinners? Well, why is Jesus on the cross in the first place? So that he could take the consequences of sin. Listen, if you were the one who has sinned or you were the one who, who did the wrongdoing, you need to know that you can look to Christ and he doesn't say it doesn't matter. He doesn't say it's not a big deal. He says it's big enough a deal that I got up on this cross. It's big enough a deal what you did that I died, that the perfect son of God died. But he says, I died to take your consequences. I died to take the death that you were owed. Listen, he is the substitution for the sinner. Beloved, if you have been sinned against, he identifies you with you on the cross. And if you were the one who sinned, he is your substitute on the cross. 
It's one of the things about being a pastor. You know, when I studied the scriptures before I was a pastor, things stayed in theory. A lot of theory. But as I study the scriptures now, I see faces and situations, and I want you to know there is comfort in Christ. That you can come to him with your pain, your wounds, your guilt. He's the one who will receive you. He's the one who forgives and brings healing. What we get out of this, this heaviness is that we need to understand, one, we talked about in the beginning that, that our vocation, our roles and responsibilities, that they fall under the realm of what Christ cares about and what he has authority over. And our daily roles and responsibilities, they point to something greater. That means that, that, that what, what the responsibilities that you have, the roles that you have, they're not just for you. They're supposed to point to an eternal truth. So that's why, why husbands ought to love their wives. You ought to because you should just be nice to your wife. But also, you are saying that Christ loves us like this. Beloved, husbands ought to love and pursue their wives. And, and wives ought to love and honor their husbands. Listen, that points to something greater. That, that, that's why parenthood matters. Godly parents point to God the Father. Beloved, when I say he's a good, good father, I better model something of what that looks like. So that when people say, when I say he's a father, the conception is, oh, I know it ain't perfect. But hopefully it's something, something in the ballpark. Godly children, ones that honor their parents, they, they point to healthy disciples. Right? Disciples that will look to the Father and say, I know that you love me. I know that your rules are good. And I will honor you. And in my mind, the whole lingering question is some people are like, well, I'm saying, what about me? I will, so let's talk about it. First, the two key scriptures, the teachings came from Jesus, who was what? Single. And from Paul, who was what? Single. So, so whatever, whatever the concern is, whatever, it's not that this doesn't matter to me because the two people who preached it were single. And functionally, functionally, the church and society is healthy when there are godly marriages and, and godly families. But also the faithful single Christian, what he or she points to is the sufficiency of Christ. And in a culture that says that you aren't nothing until you have this romantic relationship, and you're saying, no, that's not true. I have Christ. And he's, he, he's, he's sufficient for me. He sustains me. I don't, I don't need this other thing because Christ is there for me. Listen, marriages should point to the shape of the gospel. Singleness should point to the sufficiency of the gospel. All right? We each have a part to play. So marriage and children and all of our vocations, all the roles and responsibilities that we have, they are for our good. And they ought to point to Christ and the church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and that you are near to us, that you love us, that you care about us and you care about the details of our lives our 
responsibilities, the ups and downs, the roles, all these things, all those things about our life, they are, they are a concern to you because you care about us. So Lord, I pray that we would be a church that by your grace models the shape and the sufficiency of the gospel by the way that we live. And that we also would be a church that would not be afraid to ask for help. Lord God, that, that we would, would uh, be in each other's corners, encouraging one another, praying for one another, bearing each other's burdens, so that you, Christ, would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.